these past two Sundays. And um, I was commenting at lunch today at how much I have enjoyed listening to you sing. Seriously, you, when a congregation sings like you do, it's a blessing to the preacher. Uh, it really is. Uh, you're singing from the heart. There's a very good spirit here. And I just want to, again, commend you and appreciate being here. And I hope that I've been a blessing to you and hope this message tonight will be an encouragement to your soul. So let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for this evening service. Thank you for this Lord's Day, this Easter Sunday, and what it signifies. And we praise you for the risen Christ. So, Father, tonight, as we open your word, may our minds be receptive, and may our hearts be responsive. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the word of God, please, and turn to the book of John. And tonight I'll be reading uh, chapter 20 and verses 19 through the end of the chapter, verse 31, but we will be concentrating on verses 19 to 23. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to them, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Bring your finger here and see my hands, and bring your hand here and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas Answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence 
of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have faith in his name. Well, in a famous church in Copenhagen, Denmark, there is a statue of our Lord showing him alive with nail-pierced hands, with his hands and arms outstretched. He's in the middle of six of his disciples, six on one side, six on the other. And of that number, the apostle Paul takes the place of Judas. Visitors who pause and and look at this statue are often moved deeply because they do not see a victim, an emaciated Christ upon a cross, but rather a risen Savior and Lord displaying the battle scars of his triumphant victory over death, standing among his own, commissioning them to service. This evening I'd like to speak to you about Christ, the triumphant Savior. Now in our text this evening, it is Sunday evening, after Christ rose from the dead. It's that very evening. And as we read earlier this morning, Jesus had appeared to Mary and the other Mary uh, along the pathway and the women. And we read in the book of Luke that he appeared to two disciples on the road to a Maus, one named Cleopas. Peter and John had also gone into the empty tomb and witnessed that. Now it is evening and the group of disciples minus Thomas have gathered together in probably what would be known as the upper room. And they're there, as the text says, for fear of the Jews. Now think about this. They're there. They're bewildered. They're hearing this witness and this testimony of the women. They've seen Jesus. Peter and John, they witnessed the tomb is empty. And out of nowhere, Jesus bodily is in their presence. He's not a phantom. Again, he's risen bodily from the dead. He is there in bone and flesh right in front of them in his resurrected body. And what an amazing thing. Turn over for a minute to the book of Luke, chapter 24. Hold your place here as Luke elaborates on this beginning in the 36th verse. He says, now while they were telling these things, he stood in their midst and said to them, peace to you. But being startled and frightened, they were thinking that they were seeing a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still. Still, I'm sorry, and while they were, 
while they still were not believing, rather, because of their joy and were still marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Now, Jesus is there, and he's showing them he is alive bodily, physically. Again, we serve a risen Savior who is now ascended into heaven, the Son of God who is making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. Human being, fully God and fully human. He's not a fandom, he's not a spirit. He is a man, the God-man, and he is in heaven today. But he appears to them in this way right out of nowhere. So when our Lord appeared to the disciples in the upper room following his resurrection, the first thing he did was show them his hands and his side. Now I want us to think about this tonight. The triumphant Savior and these wounds, he still bears them to this day. And they show his triumph, his triumph over sin, his triumph over death. And he wears them as, if if you will, a memorial of his death for you and I. It is finished. No more sacrifice for sins whatsoever anymore. He is the arisen Savior ascended into heaven. Now, first of all, these scars testify of our Savior's personal identity. Now, maybe you have seen commercials or ads for identity theft protection. And we hear about that in this day, this idea of identity theft. Jesus here is demonstrating that he is Jesus. The one that was nailed to that cross and died has risen from the dead. He's not an imposter. He's not a fake. This is him. He is indeed the Christ of Calvary. While most of his disciples deserted him out of fear of the Jews, uh, John and probably Peter afar off, and the women had witnessed the Savior's sufferings and crucifixion. They had watched their Lord and their friend as he was nailed to that cross. They observed the spear being plunged into his side. They'd seen him die. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he, his very last word, it is finished. To Talestai, paid in full. They saw him give up the ghost. Now, the very same Jesus, the Jesus of Calvary, who had laid down his life for them out of his great love, was standing among them in his risen power, showing them his hand, his hands and his feet. Dr. A.J. Gordon relates the comments of the Hebrew Christian scholar Rabinowitz on the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And this is what he said. 
He said, do you know what questionings and controversies the Jews have kept over Zechariah 12.10? Which reads, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They will not admit that it is Jehovah whom they have pierced. Hence the dispute about the whom. But this word whom is in the original Hebrew. And it's simply the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the Aleph and the Tav. And he goes on to say, Do you wonder then that I was filled with awe and astonishment when I opened to Revelation chapter 1 and read verses 7 and 8 and read there, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And then read on and heard the glorified Lord saying, I am Alpha and Omega. The Lord Jesus seemed to say to me, Do you doubt who it is whom you have pierced? I am the Aleph and the Tav of Zechariah 12.10. I am Alpha and Omega, Jehovah, the Almighty God. Jesus Christ, fully man, pierced, but also fully God, Jehovah, pierced for our sins. Amazing. The God-man, sinless, pure, could be the perfect and was the perfect atoning sacrifice for you and for me, the God-man. Not only do these scars testify of the Christ of Calvary and his personal identity, but he's also the Christ of victory. The Christ of victory. Jesus stood in their midst and said to them, listen, peace be to you. No one but a conquering Savior could say such words after such a horrific death. He rose again from the dead and he says, Peace be to you. Indeed, three times in this chapter, our Lord declares this in verses 21 and 26 as well. Christ's death, listen, and resurrection canceled the guilt of the disciples. For they had all deserted him and fled. Yet despite their guilt, Jesus says to them, Peace be to you. Peace be with you. In doing so, Jesus canceled their guilt, calmed their fears, and cleared their doubts. He had bought peace through the blood of his cross. Now he brought peace by the power of his resurrection. He was and is today the Christ of victory. This same Jesus stands before us in all the power of his resurrection and he speaks peace to us. We cannot mistake him. The scars are self-evident We cannot escape him 
because we need our guilt canceled, our fears calmed, and our doubts cleared. He is the risen Lord, and he beckons you today, believe in me, believe and receive me. His death has bought you peace, and his resurrection will bring you peace if you repent of your sins and believe in him for salvation. And if you're a child of God today, you can rest in the absolute assurance that there is therefore now no condemnation for you. He died for you. He paid your sin debt in full. He's risen from the grave. And you have eternal life and can never be lost. Hallelujah for that. The scars of the Savior testified of the Savior's personal identity. Secondly, they testified of the Savior's powerful authority. Look at verses 20 and 21. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I also send you. Now, as I was thinking through this, the Savior's authority, He has all authority. We know in Matthew, He says, All authority. Authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. First of all, the Savior has authority to call people to repentance and faith for salvation. Now, we live in a day of what is called religious pluralism in this postmodern day. And we hear often that We cannot say to people, you need to believe these certain things for salvation. Maybe you've heard that. It's like, who do you think you are? You know, I believe my way, you believe your way. If we believe in God, we're good, we're okay, we're on our way to heaven. Not according to Jesus. Jesus has all authority to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's a reason he died on the cross. He died to pay our sin debt, and he rose again to give eternal life. And he has all authority to say, believe in me. Repent and believe the gospel. My daughter's probably watching this now, and I'm going to embarrass her. She's not here, so she can yell at me when I get home. (laughs) Her name is Miranda. She's 22, studying to be a nurse. But one of the very first verses that she learned was Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ And thou shalt be saved. And I remember this little four-year-old with pigtails 
saying, wait, 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 Daddy, I can do it all by myself. And she would say it. And now she's going to get married to a nice young man at the end of the year. I'm feeling old. <laughs> but how important it is to teach our children these crucial truths. And I praise God that by God's grace, she did accept Christ. And we today say with love, we don't, we don't say bombastically and harshly to people, believe in Jesus. No, we come with the love of the Savior, with compassion. We, we love the lost. We want them to come to Christ. And we know that it's the Holy Spirit ultimately that brings this to pass. But we go prayerfully and lovingly and we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no other name given among, I'm sorry, there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's an absolute statement. And we must hold that clearly in this age. Salvation depends on it. People's souls depend on it. And we need to be clear. So he has the absolute authority to call people to salvation. Now, let me say this quickly. We understand there's the general call and the effectual call. He has the authority to give that general call. And that's what we do. We go out and we give that general call. But he also has the sovereign authority to give the effectual call through the Holy Spirit. And that is his right and his prerogative. But we participate in the general call by going out into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature, trusting, praying, Lord, bring them to faith, impart to them faith by your grace. Secondly, under this heading of the Savior's Powerful authority. He has the authority to call to salvation. Secondly, he has the authority to call to submission. Now, this is not a separate component that is you're saved and then later on you surrender. No, no. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. It's together. It's together. So when a person comes to Christ in faith... They're also bowing the knee to the king. You cannot, a person cannot, come to Christ truly in saving faith while not bowing to him as the king of kings. We are saved to surrender to his lordship. Salvation and submission are inseparably uh, connected. Jesus said, if any man wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The risen Lord has the absolute authority to say, you must submit to your life to me. All of it. All of it. And that's what the call is. It's a call to leave the sin behind. It's a call to leave the old life behind. It's a call to leave the world behind and to embrace Christ and his kingdom. Thirdly, 
the Savior's authority, he has the absolute authority to commission his disciples for service. Notice what he says to them. So send I you. Now, I looked at this and I, and I believe, and, and it, you know, I'm sure this is something that as pastors we can, theologians can discuss, but I, I believe that this commission in Matthew 28 is a corporate commission for service. I believe it involves every believer. Now, some people say, well, they don't believe that, but I, but I personally do. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I believe the church corporately has that mandate given to her that we are to go out as the local church and do this corporately. But there's also individual gifts given. And we're called to utilize our gifts for the glory of God in submission to service. And real briefly, Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12 speak of this. Paul says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Listen, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. I have to say, being here these two weeks, I have seen that in action. Some of you are wearing two, three, four hats right now. You're serving God. And you're doing it wholeheartedly. And that's wonderful. But every Christian, we, we have a part to serve the Lord. And the Savior has given, has absolute authority to commission us for service. Fourthly, under this heading of the Savior's scars, testifying of his powerful authority, he has the absolute authority to call us to suffer for his glory. This is hard. This is very hard. We don't want to suffer naturally, do we? But what did Paul say over in Philippians chapter number 1, verses 27 to 30? Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same struggle which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Brothers and sisters, we're living in a time where there is increasing hostility to Christianity in our culture. Let not that surprise you. 
what did he say? He says, it's a mark of destruction for them. But of you, he says, it's a commendation, salvation. This is, this is pointing, yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So don't let the world discourage you with its opposition. Understand that as it persecuted Christ, it will persecute us. And we will suffer for Christ in, in different ways. And he has the authority to call us to that. Now, when we hear these things, <laughs> at least when I do, I cry out with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? I can't do them in my own strength. How then? Well, the 22nd verse of our text, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. The scars not only point to the Savior's personal identity and his powerful authority. Listen, and this is so beautiful. I'm glad for this. They point to the Savior's sufficiency. You and I are complete in him. Complete in him. What did Zechariah say? Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Our Savior has plentiful sufficiency. He has the power to save sinners. We witness, we pray, we witness, but it is God who saves. God has a people in Holland, Michigan. I believe that. Do you? He has a people in Flint, Michigan. And we have to be careful. While we certainly do not want to be an impediment, a stumbling block, that is, to people, we don't want to buy into the thought that somehow, some way, we can make it happen by our strength and ingenuity. Oh, no. Salvation is always, always a work of God for man. It is never a work of man for God. I'm going to quote the catechism for just a minute. I'm not looking for brownie points. I'm just... I'm excited you have that class. <laughs> and I read through this again, and I, I'm reminded of two things here. Question 31. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So what that means, unlike the popular opinion that somehow you and I can convince people into believing in Jesus, it's saying this, that the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God 
and effectually works in their heart to bring about faith in them. And that's what we believe. That's what we believe. And we are confident in the power of God. It goes on. Question 32. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, and he is sufficient. The the scars remind us of the Savior's plentiful sufficiency, the power to save sinners, to bring the spiritually dead to life. As it took the triune God to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, and as it will take the triune God to physically raise the dead at the last day at Christ's return. So it takes the triune God to raise the spiritually dead who are lost and dead in trespasses and sins. You can't do it. I can't do it. But God can and will as we faithfully proclaim his word. His word will not return void. And that brings me to the second heading of this. Under this third point, the Savior's plentiful sufficiency as the power to save sinners. He also, through the Holy Spirit, has the power for mighty preaching. The power for mighty preaching. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any... Their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, I understand that there's the issue of Matthew 18 there and the church and the keys and so forth. But listen to what John Gill says about this. He says, This is to be understood only in a doctrinal or ministerial way by preaching the full and free remission of sins through the blood of Christ, according to the riches of God's grace, to repent of their sins and believe in Christ, declaring that all such persons as do so repent and believe, all their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. So the Holy Spirit of God imparts the power of Christ's authority in the preached word to declare it effectually, effectually. This church appreciates preaching. I've noticed that. I've noticed that. It's encouraging. And the reason why you appreciate preaching is because you believe that it is God's method of bringing the word to people whereby the Holy Spirit effectually calls them. Listen to question 92. In the Catechism. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, 
an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Jesus Christ is sufficient to give power to his word. That's why, for example, we don't resort to comedy and different man-made ideas to try to get people interested in God, interested in Christ, interested in salvation. Again, that's a work of man. Rather, we hold to the belief from Scripture that it's through the foolishness of preaching that salvation is wrought in sinners' hearts through the effectual work of the Holy Spirit. Finally, thirdly, the Savior's plentiful sufficiency is testified by these scars for power for holy living. Our blessed risen Savior has given His Holy Spirit to every single one of us who are believers here. You have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, placed into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You have the Holy Spirit, but we are also called to be filled with the Spirit. That is, we are to be yielded to Him. We are to be under His control. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the same idea, when you are, when a person, rather, is drunk, they are under the influence of alcohol. Rather than that, we are to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And that comes through the means of grace and being filled under his control. So, our blessed risen Savior has given the Holy Spirit to every believer, imparting to them the new divine nature to live a holy life. What did Paul say? I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, that is this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. Spirit-filled life. We have a new heart, new desires, but we also have a new power new power, and that is to live for Christ out of love for Christ because our hearts have been changed. But this is a progressive holiness. Quickly, and I'm not putting this down, I'm just telling you about my background and I have lovely friends and relatives that are of this um, theological persuasion, but I grew up in a in a denomination that taught entire sanctification. And in seminary, I went to a, a um, seminary that taught this uh, the, for the first part of my education. And I was greatly discouraged because I, I always, Romans 7, <laughs> that was my life. And I could never get past that until I finally recognized after uh, reading some of Calvin and others that 
guess what, Eric? That's, that's going to be your life until you get to glory, but you're progressively sanctified. Little by little, as you grow in grace, it's a battle. It's a battle, but yet the trajectory has changed. And so, question 36 about sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled, listen, more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. See, it's progressive. It's progressive. Sometimes people will come to me and they're struggling with assurance of salvation. And I I was like that as well as a young man. I struggled. Oh, Lord, I've sinned again. Am I even a Christian? You know, and and that's a real battle. But I say to that person, what is concerning you? And it's my performance. I've let God down. I'm such a miserable, oh, I feel terrible. Do you have victory over sin? At times I do, but then I go back and I sin again. And I, listen, do you love the Lord? Yes. Do you believe he died for your sins? I do, 100%. And I say to them, I'm not condoning sin, but I want to tell you, your, your trajectory, your heart is, is showing me that you love Christ. Your sin bothers you. That's good. It's the person who doesn't get bothered by their sin. That concerns me. The hard-hearted, but the soft and the tender-hearted man or woman. That's an encouraging thing. And there's that power for holy living. And it comes out of, listen, our raised position in Christ. We don't live for Christ to gain his acceptance. You and I have already been accepted in Jesus. Imputed righteousness. Listen, this is how it works. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 5.17, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You are completely holy in Christ, but it's not your holiness, it's Christ's holiness. And you stand in that permanent position, and now you and I live out that position by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's the power for holy living. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The risen Christ is triumphant. He is our victorious Savior, and he brings redemption from the condemnation of sin. Peace be unto you, he says. He brings release from the shackles of sin. Receive the Holy Spirit. And on that last day, the day of his glorious return, he will bring the full relief from the presence of sin when our bodies are raised as his raised body. I'm thankful for the resurrection of Christ and what it means today. And I hope and pray that today you've been blessed as I have been blessed. And I thank you for being here. And I'd like to pray as I close.
Father, thank you today for your word. And I ask, Father, that you'll use it um, to help and strengthen this dear flock of yours. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of standing here as an unworthy sinner saved by grace. But I thank you, Lord, that my position in Christ is complete, as we've discussed, as theirs is, as believers, fellow brothers and sisters. And I pray that you will work encouragement in each of our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.